0: Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, if you will. I had put myself on a schedule to get through John chapter 8 before Christmas, and I thought, nope, <laughs> this is, there's just too much in this sweet little section of Scripture. I, I'm not going to put myself according to schedule. I'd rather just uh, do a, a good job of... Of digging out all the rich truths that are in this amazing passage. And so we'll be looking at verses 31 to 36 today. If you recall, uh, last week, Jesus, he's been interacting with a particular group of people uh, who are spiritually blind. Uh, John has been uh, sort of giving us this analogy of the light and the dark, and Jesus is the light. And so um, these people are in need of light, and they're walking in in darkness. And he he came to, to give life to men. Um, yet these men are spiritually blind and they've rejected Jesus' testimony. And so if you remember, if you were here last week, Jesus warned them that they were in danger of dying in their sins. We looked at several, several areas. It's basically a, a how to die in your sins manual uh, last week. He warned them that if you're self-righteous, that inevitably leads to dying in your sins. If you are worldly, leads to dying in your sins. If you're, you remain in unbelief, or willful ignorance, all of those lead to spiritual death. This was a very happy passage last week, but it ended with a ray of hope. I don't know if you remember this, in verse 30. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. So there's a little bit of a ray of hope. Okay, many believed in him, and I told you we would look at that uh, this week. Their belief, though, as you'll see, and I'll just break it to you now, is not a, a saving faith, it's just merely a step toward it. It's the starting point. Uh, the Lord begins this section with the goal of pointing them to full saving faith, faith that would set them free. And Jesus defines in this section that faith as truth. He uses the words truth. Now, today, we live in the wake of postmodernism, don't we? In the world of, of there's no absolute uh, truths. Um, Postmodernists reject the notion that there can be anything such as an absolute truth. Um, Your truths are true for you. Uh, Truths come from your societal norms, your cultures in which you live. So there's no timeless truths, just preferences. Just whatever is true for you is, is your truth. So interestingly, the only thing that postmodern thinkers are absolutely certain of is that there is no thing that is absolutely certain. With no absolute truth and there's no supreme law, there's no law governing your your morality, and so there's license to sin, free, guilt-free. They've made their own truths. And that's why today tolerance is the new uh, clarion call, isn't it? Um, Tolerance specifically in the area of morals. To impose your values upon another is the worst grievance possible. And that just makes Christians and Christianity, well, intolerable. Interesting. But while the world latches onto this sort of uncertainty, this, this chaos in which we live, and it is, uh, I want to remind you that James describes that as wisdom, that is uh, demonic and sensual, right? It's earthly. It's, it's not of, of heaven. But believers have been given the truth. And scriptures are the solid truth of God himself. And, and since we're talking about truth, I'm going to point us to truth. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures this morning so that you know it's not me saying it's truth, but scripture says it's truth. Scriptures tell us that God himself is truth. In Psalm 31, verse 5, we're told this by David. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. That's the same Uh, a verse that Jesus will utter from the cross, right? But this is the God of truth that he prays to. Psalm 117, verse 2 says, For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's something to praise the Lord for because he's truth, and he never wavers off of truth. Today, is it not hard to find what's true? You don't know what to believe one day from the next because it's constantly changing. You wake up and look at the news, what's true today? It's not what was true yesterday. Also, scripture tells us that Jesus is truth. In John one14 we've already come across this in John's gospel. We were told this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And just a few verses later, in verse 17, we're told this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God the Father himself is truth. Jesus brings truth into a world full of untruth. And also, Jesus will declare, and we'll get to this in, in John uh, fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So he is truth. He's the embodiment of truth. But also the Holy Spirit is truth. In John 14, verses 16 to 17, we're told this, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another Helper that he may abide with you forever. Who is this helper? The spirit of truth. We need truth. We're desperate for truth. This world, in, in, a, in a search for whatever they think is right or truth, has actually rejected truth. They're searching for truth, rejecting truth. It's an odd world we live in. And the Bible is the word of truth. And in <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we're reminded of this. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, the word of truth. And Jesus will later pray to the Father this amazing prayer. And when we get there, it's going to be amazing. John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We believe in the truth because salvation has come to us by truth. That's how you were saved. You were saved not by falsehood. You were saved not by method, You were saved not by works, you were saved not by philosophy, you were saved by truth. And 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's where it began. In 1 Timothy 2, Three to four, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires men to know truth. Not your truth, truth. But many reject the truth. And that is how the Bible describes unbelievers as well. John has done a good job thus far of giving different facets of the gospel. No matter what background or where you come from, maybe you more identify with the woman at the well. And the idea of needing water, right? Spiritual thirst clicks with you. Maybe it's the idea of light and dark. And so John puts that in there. Jesus talked about the light and the dark. Maybe that reveals truth to you. John does it again here as he remembers the words of Jesus speaking about truth and truth setting you free But those who are spiritually blind, who have not opened their eyes to the light, are described as those who've rejected truth. They're destitute of the truth. Timothy primarily writes about it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, um, even in Titus. You hear things like this. They're destitute of the truth. They've strayed concerning the truth. They're learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They resist the truth. They turn away their ears from the truth. It's all because they've ignored the truth. They reject truth. And if anyone hopes to be saved, they must accept truth. You can't be a postmodernist then and a Christian. You can't accept the philosophies of this age and be a Christian. They don't don't mesh. You can't say there's no absolute truth when truth is the way to be saved. Does that make sense? To be a Christian is to believe in the truth that brings spiritual freedom. And that is the theme of this short and wonderful passage of Scripture. So let's read it today. It's John chapter 8. Verses 31 to 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides in forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. God, once again, we come to hear from you, to hear your divine words speak to our hearts. Lord, we want to know you. We want to see your truth today. I think every week we pray that we would see truth But Lord, more specifically today, Jesus calls us to know truth, to accept truth, to follow in truth, to be obedient to truth. Lord, would you help us to see this truth today and apply it to our lives for your glory? I pray these things in your name. Amen. So here, Jesus is doing something. He is explaining the pathway to freedom, to freedom. You see the slave theme in here and the freedom theme in here. Just like he exposed the pathway that leads to sin, you will die in your sins if you're self-righteous. You will die in your sins if you're willfully ignorant, right? That's the pathway that leads to death. Here's the pathway that leads to freedom and life. And that's what he explains today. And so I just want you to see the pathway to freedom. What's the pathway begin with? Where does it start? Well, it starts where it always starts. In verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. It starts with Belief in Christ. Believing in Christ is where it always starts. That's always the starting point. It's the first step. But, but, the Bible warns that not all faith is saving faith. This belief does not mean that they're saved. These believing Jews, I think, are a case in point here, believing with this, because Jesus will later describe them as slaves of sin in verse 34. Those who did not really love him in verse 42 and children of the devil in 44. Doesn't sound like people who believe. In fact, he just tells us in verse 45, you don't believe, you don't believe me. So here's the quandary. How can believing Jews believe him or unbelieving Jews not believe him? How does this work? Does it make sense? Well, this is not new to John's gospel. Earlier in chapter 2, we came across this thinking. I want to bring you back to there. I know we've looked at it a few times, but just go back to John chapter 2. Look at verse 23. Jesus has met uh, belief before, but you might remember it's not true belief. Chapter 2, verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. They believed him, but they believed because they saw these signs. They were enamored by the signs. They were wowed by the show. But Jesus knew their heart. He knew there wasn't true belief. Later in chapter six, Jesus will feed a multitude of people. They so are enthralled by that. They want to make him king. But not before you reach the end of the chapter, many turn away from him and follow him no more. Was that belief? It's a belief, but it's a belief that stops short of saving faith. Belief is a starting point, but it must lead to saving faith. The Apostle Paul describes what you must believe. If You want to know what, what, what do you have to believe? Where does it start? 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. This is our go-to verse, right? Surely you've used this in evangelism. First Corinthians fifteen three to four, for I deliver to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, right? That's what you have to believe. You have to believe that Christ died for our sins because the Bible said so. You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again because the Bible said so. That's belief. But immediately prior to verses three and four, Verses 1 and 2 warn us of believing in vain. Look at verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm preaching you the gospel, the gospel you received, it's the gospel that you stand in, and it's by the gospel that you saved, if, if, you continue in that word that I preached to you, unless that was a vain belief. You see that? I would circle that if. I would turn to 1 Corinthians I would circle that if. It's a big if. I gave you the gospel. That's the gospel that you stand. It's the gospel that will save you. And you continue in the gospel. And Jesus will talk about this. But if you don't continue, you've stopped short of saving faith. You have believed in vain. Does that make sense? In 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul warns us, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? You have to examine yourself. Am I? Am I saved? Have I just started at belief? Have I just been at belief all this time and have I not moved forward to saving faith? Hebrews 10, 38 to 39. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back My soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Scary verse. There's just will live by faith, but there are those who will draw back, who will go back to perdition, to destruction. But the writer says here that, that we're not of those. We're the ones who believe all the way to the saving of your soul. So here's the question, then, what is saving faith, right? What are we talking about? I'm not trying to scare you all. Well, it has three parts, three parts. Knowledge, acceptance, and trust. Those are the three parts. It does incorporate some knowledge. You, you do have to have an understanding of the gospel. Otherwise, why preach the gospel, right? Why mention Jesus? Why mention sin? Obviously, you're trying to uh, get people to comprehend the idea, the fact Not just an idea, the fact that you're fallen sinners in need of a Savior, right? And that Jesus died for your sin. But this is not something I made up, knowledge, acceptance, and trust. There is a classical biblical definition of saving faith given to us in Scripture, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to take you there. Hebrews chapter 11. If we're in John, make a right-hand turn. You get to Revelation, you've gone too far. That didn't help you, did it? Okay. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 3. We'll start there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, we understand. The word understand, neao, is to perceive with the mind. That's knowledge. By faith, we we get knowledge. Okay, then so what is faith, right? If that's true, what is faith? Go up to verse one. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance of things hoped for. Hupostasis is the word, and it just means firm trust. It means confidence. It means Assurance, or can I say acceptance, right? So you have knowledge. Here you have acceptance. And then the second half of verse one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Elehas, the word evidence means conviction, that by which a thing is proved or tested. Trust, knowledge, acceptance, trust. All those things are uh, saving faith elements, right? When do you demonstrate faith in a chair? When you look at the chair or when you sit in it, right? There's all kinds of those tests uh, of trust tests they do in the group settings now, right? Where they get together and they want to test and, and build confidence and build morality and build trust. Right, and you're supposed to cross your arms and and fall back into the waiting arms of somebody. That's the trust part, isn't it? Right? You're gonna catch me, right? Because I'm falling. I'm not putting my arms back. I'm I'm going. You're gonna be there, right? That's the trust part. We've got to get all the way there with our belief. But this is the amazing thing. The writer of Hebrews doesn't just give us that and go, well, okay, figure it out. If you read the rest of chapter 11, you are given example after example after example in scripture of those who had saving faith, who never stopped short, who never drew back. Just just look real quick. Look at verse four. We start with Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him, for because he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Verse 7 By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, I'm going to bring rain and a flood upon the uh, world. Great, God. What's rain? Never rained. Never rained before. I'm bringing rain. Okay. Need you to build a boat. Okay what's a boat, I mean, what, right? He, things not seen. You're warned of things not seen. He moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And on you go. You go to, you go to Abraham, you go to Sarah, you go to Moses, you go all through, even uh, Rahab the harlot, all through here, example after example in Hebrews 11, of people whose faith demonstrated saving trust Okay, God, you say you're going to flood the world, whatever flood is, and you tell me to build this big thing, whatever that is, I'll start. I'll do it for a hundred years. <laughs> Incredible. So belief in Jesus is a saving faith that involves trust, it involves commitment, not merely knowledge, not merely assent. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, that's, that's step one, What's step two? Well, the second half of that verse. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Step two is abiding in his word. Those who are truly Jesus' disciples will abide in his word. Jesus used the the present tense, are, did you notice it there? You are my disciples indeed. And I think that clarifies that what Jesus was not saying was abide in my word and eventually you become my disciples. That's not what he's trying to say. He's declaring that the very nature of a true disciple is one who abides in his word. Are you a disciple of Jesus? You are if you abide in his word. Abide is meno. It means to remain, to continue. Remember to the saving of the faith? If you continue, that's what it means. So Jesus is saying the same thing here. If you remain, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Great. So that means... Continue in faithful obedience to his word. And the theme of obedience to Christ is a theme of the New Testament, but specifically of John's writings as well. Let me give you some examples from this gospel. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus will say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Hmm, obedience, love. John fourteen twenty one. he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Right? Jesus has only been wanting to do the will of the Father, to obey his will, and that is love for the Father. And he says, you do the same thing. Abide in my will. Obey me. You show me love. Also, in first John, in his first John two, four to six, he says this He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But over keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. First John three twenty four. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. One more. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's just John. I just picked him, right? Over and over and over again, faithful obedience to the Lord. Now, listen to me. This involves every area of our lives. Christ is Lord of your whole heart or he isn't Lord. I know we're generally good at obeying God in the big outward areas, right? The big no-nos. But what about those other secret places of our hearts? Is he Lord on Sundays, but not on Mondays to Saturdays? Is he Lord over your Tongue, your speech, your thoughts. Is he Lord when you watch movies together, but, but not when you browse the internet secretly? Wives, do you submit to the headship of your husbands? You're supposed to submit to him as unto the Lord. Therefore, if you don't submit to your husbands, you haven't submitted to the Lord. He's not Lord. Husbands, <laughs> do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Because if you don't, you haven't loved Christ. You see what I'm saying? He's Lord over everything. Over my pocketbook, my finances, my future, my time. Those are the areas, a lot of times, we are happy to hold on to. Oh, he's Lord over, yeah, I don't commit adultery, and I don't steal. I generally don't hate people. (laughs) But what about all those other things? Those are just some of the areas where we fight to remain in control. Now, I know I've talked about this before, but I just want to hit it again because it really is where it goes down to. Control is a product of two, one of two things, either lust or fear, right? That's where it generates from. So you're either fighting to control or obtain the things that you, you want, the things that you, you convince yourself you need. You lust after those, those things, and it's the fighting to control those things that gets you. Or you're, you're coming from a place of fear. You're trying to control uh, the, the things that you have to preserve them. I don't want to lose the things I, I have, right? And those are two sides of the same coin. Fear, lust. And they both generate from one place, and it's the heart. The heart that's ruled by self and not Christ. Christ is Lord of everything, or he's not really Lord, But the path to joyful abundance is where Christ rules the heart. That's the direction we're going. That is contentment instead of lust. That's peace instead of fear. Do you see? And we look at these things, we go, wow, yeah, that sounds great, but how can we know those things? Well, Jesus says it here. I want you to look at verse 32. And you shall know the truth. And you shall... Shall know the truth. I'm convinced far too many Christians don't know the truth. Well, so no, know, I I know the truth. Then those things should be yours. Contentment and peace are the Christians. That is for you. He says, You'll know the truth. Know is gonosco. To learn to know, to come to know, to understand. I heard so many times Christians say, oh yeah, Christianity, it's just a blind faith, right? We just, we blindly, we blindly believe. Like, well, no, because Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He didn't say, you'll have a feeling about the truth and the truth will set you free, right? You'll have a blind faith in the truth and the truth will set you free. Good belief. believe... And the, the, the trust, right? All those things are aspects of it. I have to believe in Christ. It's not the signs won't generate belief. We saw that by John, right? It's not the signs that generate belief. None of those things. But I, I believe first. Uh, that, that's where that goes. I'm going to take that first step. But, but then I've got to go into, okay, what, what, what happens next? Well, I'm obeying him. I'm, I'm committed to obeying him, remaining in his word, and if I do that, then I know the truth. Here's where the, here's where the problem lies. It's in that middle part, right? I got belief, and here's the knowing of the truth. It's this part right down here, that, that faithfully abiding in his word, that's where we, we stumble, right? Because we don't go there. <laughs> we don't remain in his word. And then we don't know the truth. And Jesus wants you to know the truth. Knowing the truth comes from revelation of scripture. That's where it comes from, and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. You're not gonna get a lightning bolt. Sorry. Lightning's real. It's not truth. <laughs> Scripture is truth. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, we're told this. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. That happens through obedience to his word, faithfully abiding in it, right? And we come to know divine truth. And the Holy Spirit confirms that, teaches you those things. But it comes through his divine truth here. And that's what sanctifies us. Not coming to church on Sundays, not tithing, not taking communion, not even moving halfway around the world, right? That doesn't sanctify me. Jesus prayed that very simple prayer. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's how you are sanctified. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. It's scripture, isn't it? Scripture sanctifies you. One of the great sort of memory verses you should commit to memory is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. One of those first ones I memorize. And remember this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I think we memorize that because we we're told, like, you just need to know that all the Bible comes from God. I just remember being told that young, right? All the Bible comes from God. Learn 2 Timothy 3:16. Yeah, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Great. But what about the rest of this verse? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So many. Christians, not complete, not equipped. All these things scripture is supposed to do, it's healthy for you to find correction in scripture, to find reproof. We find instruction. And look at the result when that happens. And the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth, and then the truth will make you free. You're not truly free until you've come to know the truth. Now, I know Jesus is talking to a bunch of people just on the edge. They just have that step of belief, but he's laying out the pathway to freedom. But I'm telling you, I think so many Christians are somewhere in there. All right, not, not all the way here, but they're still trying to figure this, this out. And Jesus said, listen, you you, not you bite in my word. You stay faithfully connected, right, to truth, and then you're really my disciple. And what comes from that is you're going to know truth. You'll live like you know truth, and you really, really will be free. How many are not free today? Shackled by regret, unforgiveness, bitterness, past failures. I mean, you just go on and on and on. You're not free. Jesus says you're going to be free. Being made free is the fourth element. You have to be free. You have to believe the reality of what Jesus is talking about. It brings spiritual freedom. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from judgment, freedom from spiritual ignorance, freedom from spiritual death, and obviously in this context, sin. But many have the pretense of freedom, don't they? They Go on just saying, no, I'm free, I'm free. They think they're free when they, in reality they're not. These Jews were the same. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? You know what? You must be talking to somebody else. I've been a Christian for 25 years, I'm free. You must be talking to a different crowd. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Now listen. <laughs> people like to go, what are they talking about here? Because they certainly couldn't have been talking about political or physical bondage because they've been in bondage to everybody. I think there are you know, Egypt, Assyria, right? Metapersia, persia Babylon, Greece, you just go, Rome. So what are they referring to? I do think they're referring to spiritual freedom, not political, because they felt absolutely secure in their identity as Abraham's descendants. We're God's chosen people. We don't experience spiritual bondage. God's chosen us. That's for those other pagan people. I was raised in a Christian home. I know all these things. I'm free. Jesus knocks that down immediately. In verse 34, Jesus answered them. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You're free, are you? He says, I say you're slaves. And not just that, he says, most assuredly again, right? This is unique to John. If pointed it out every time we get to it. Most assuredly is the double amen of John. Truly, truly. That means this statement has significance, importance. Jesus has in view here, I believe, sin is a lifestyle or our innate fallenness. I don't think just individual acts. Obviously, none of us have been perfected. We do sin, but where are these Jews here? They're just on the edge of belief. And they're, they've fallen to where with that statement? Self-righteousness. Where does self-righteousness end again from last week? Spiritual death, dying in your sins. They've just gone there. Oh, but we're Abraham's descendants, so we're good. If it's all about freedom, Jesus, then we're good. Because we're free. And Jesus says, no, you're actually slaves. You're slaves and you don't even know it. Is that not the world? Slaves of sin, but they don't know it? Is that not postmodern thinking? Slaves to their own appetites, but don't know it. No, it's about freedom, don't they say? It's about freedom. I'm free to be who I want to be today. I'm a man today. Tomorrow I'm a woman. I'll be a dog tomorrow. I don't care. I'm free. But Jesus says, you're not free. You've actually, you made yourself a slave. And guess who you're a slave to? Yourself. That's it. Don't go Satan. Oh, I'm a slave to Satan. Satan just loves you being a slave to yourself. Satan will use that. But that's where you are because self is ruling the heart, not Christ. It's about lordship. They're slaves of sin? This is unthinkable. They thought their relationship with Abraham was what united them with God and they had no relationship with God. And Paul describes that relationship in Romans chapter two, verses 28 to 29. He says this, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It's not the outward. It's not the circumcision. He's, I'm talking about the heart. It's a heart issue. And let me tell you, you don't have to be Jewish to have the pretense of freedom, do you? Because Gentiles have the same problem. We mistake all the same things for freedom. But the Bible is clear that the only way for sinners to find freedom from sin and its penalty is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Which is Jesus' final point. Look at verse 35. This is the promise of freedom here. We've had uh, the pathway to freedom. Here's the promise. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Jesus uses the analogy of slavery again here. Both both slaves and sons dwelt in the same household, right? In the first century here, you have particularly the Roman households here. The son had the permanent rights, but the slave only uh, temporary. And even though the Jews were Abraham's descendants, they really were like the slaves and not the sons. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even though they were part of God's chosen nation, they were more like the slaves. In fact, Jesus says so much in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's only those who receive Jesus Christ as the son of God, whether you're descended descendant of Abraham or not, who are truly the sons of God. John tells us so much in First John 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. How'd that come about? Receiving him, believing in him. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. And in Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's, that's how that comes. You want to be a son? It comes through faith. Abraham's descendants, you're not sons. You're slaves, he says. You're slaves. A slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Okay, so I guess I want to be the son. I guess that's the goal. I guess I don't want to be a slave. I want to be a son. And so Jesus makes this amazing promise in verse 36, which really just reiterates verse 32. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's interesting, there's sort of a little play on words going here. Son, in both verse 35 and 36, are the same Greek word, right? If you're a, a son in a household, you have all the rights. But Jesus is also the son, and I'm the son that will set you free. Right, the son will be the one that will inherit, right? The son that will, will be the one that will be the master over the slaves. And the son will make you free. You'll be free, and you'll be free indeed, Antos it means in reality. Now I love that because they thought they were free and they weren't. He's like, you're, you're not free, you're slaves. But if you want to be free, the son will set you free and then you'll really be free in reality. Paul explains this so well. It's in Galatians chapter four and Charles read it. But I just want you to look at it. We're gonna just take a deeper look real quick. In Galatians four, Just just real quick look there. Galatians chapter four. Paul is talking to the church in Galatia because they, they, have, been, they have become s- saved, but Judaizers have come in and, and come into the church and preached a different gospel and convinced them that they have to come back to uh, Judaism. Right? They've got to be circumcised. That You can be a Christian as a Gentile, but it comes through Judaism. You have to be a Jew. So you need to be circumcised. Need, so they start going back to those things. Paul uses the word bewitched. We studied this not too long ago. It was last year or something like that, Galatians. And and we asked that question, is it possible for a Christian to be bewitched? Well, Well, yeah, it was because they were doing it. And Paul was saying, stop, you've been bewitched. Someone's tricked you. You don't have to have that. And what's he remind them about? They were slaves, but they're free. He says, guess what you're doing? You're going back to slavery. And the Hall of Galatians, I encourage you to read it, is about that. Don't go back to slavery. Who wants to be a slave again? No, you want to be free. And that's what Galatians 4 is about. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. The young child would be put in the the care, the custodian of a a servant, a slave, right? Not the father, not the parents. And and so he's the heir, but he's actually under the control of another slave, of a servant, because he's young. He's a child. But, verse 2 He's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So he'll come to a point where that will switch, where the reversal will take place. Even so, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, the philosophy of the world. Truth comes, make your own truth. Postmodernism, what of it, right? Verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Hmm. How did we get out of this again? Oh, okay. God sent Christ as a person, right? To redeem, to purchase you out of slavery so that you're no longer a slave, but now you're a son. And if you're a son, because you're a son, verse six, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now you have a relationship because you just gained a father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What a rich promise. It's like, church, don't go back to being slaves. Do you realize you've already inherited everything? You're in the household of God. Hebrews 3, 6 tells us that Jesus is the head over that household. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Christ is the head of that house and we're in that house if though, see there's another if again. We hold fast the confidence and rejoice in hope firm to the end all the way to saving faith and not stopping short and not drawing back. The contrast between what the privileges of a son and the privileges of a servant are incredible in here. The son has the same nature as the father, doesn't he? And you have a divine nature because you're a son now and no longer a servant. The son has a father. You have a relationship, not a master. So you serve him out of a relationship, not out of I must obey, but from relationship. The son obeys out of love, the servant out of fear. The son is rich, all the spiritual riches that we have, but the servant is poor. And the son has a future and the servant, none. Incredible. So what am I saying here? I'm saying we're sons in Christ. Stop acting like slaves. You're not one. I love this truth. Men have gone before us and written about this truth in hymns like And Can It Be, Charles Wesley. We've sung this very phrase, and I just want you to hear what we've sung before. Long my imprisoned imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. and then got discouraged, and went back and put the chains back on. No, nope. doesn't say that. What did he say? I rose, I went forth, and I followed him. I followed him. I want to close with taking you to Second Peter. And we'll end here. Near the end of the Bible here. This is a description of a Christian who has remained a slave. He starts out with just reminding us of the great riches, the things that we have given to us from God the Father. And in verse three, he says this. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, a son, Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust and fear. You see that? These things you've been given already. You have them. As a Christian, you won't get them eventually. You've been given them. You have them right now. So what's the problem here? Well, people forget. You go to verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You've been given some amazing things here, but when you forget, you have remained enslaved to sin. You've forgotten that you're forgiven from sin. If you've forgotten that you're forgiven from sin, then you're a slave to sin still, right? It's not this, these aren't just short-memoried Christians. These are Christians who have remained enslaved to sin, forgotten that they've actually been freed from it. So what is it they are lacking? Look Look at verse five. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where it hits it on the head. Many Christians, barren, unfruitful. Nothing, nothing in their lives. He says, you know what? You know what's happened is that you've just forgotten and you haven't had these things. You have anger issues. Is that your thing that keeps coming back? What do you need here? Oh, from knowledge, go to self-control. Yeah. you can't, you can't forgive. You got bitterness in your heart. Oh, from godliness, go to brotherly kindness. And that goes to love. The, these things are yours. They've been given to you, but you haven't made diligent effort to, pa- to put, put those on. How do you do that? Is there another instruction manual you have to go to that says, oh, how do I, I'm going to add brotherly kindness. A little B. Where is it? It's here. Which takes us all the way back to abiding in his word, doesn't it? Belief, abide in his word, is right in here. And then knowledge. And that knowledge is what sets you free. You know the truth. This is where we fail. Right here in the middle. Abiding in his word. Time and time again when I meet with people, and listen, I'll put myself in the same place always because I, I realize when I'm really struggling through a week, I go, I've really slacked on my quiet time with the Lord, my one-on-one devotion. It's one thing to go study to do something like this. It's rich. I love it. But it's not the same as when I have my time with the Lord. you know why? Because then he's speaking to my heart. He's going, this is what I want you to see, Kevin, because this is what I want for you. And when you ignore that, and that doesn't happen in your life, and then you come and say, hey, I don't know what's going on, that's usually where I try to find out first. If you met with me, you know that, right? Like, well, how's your quiet time going? Oh, I haven't been doing that. I don't have enough time. We all have the same amount of time. God's given it to us, all of us, the same amount of time, right? We all have the same amount of time. It's where we distribute that time. How do you prioritize that time? What's important to you? It goes back to the heart, doesn't it? if it's really important to you to make all diligence to add those things to your life so that you won't be unfruitful and barren and forget that you were cleansed from self and cleansed from sin, then you will make the time. My encouragement to you today as Jesus encouraged these people, listen, don't remain in that area of self-righteousness. Don't remain in that area of sin, but you have a path that will set you free and the son has made that path for you. And so you no longer have to act like slaves. He says you'll be free indeed, in reality. If you haven't really experienced that in your life as a Christian, something has been lacking. I will tell you that. You, you have to know that you have been free. There is no longer power of sin over you. Jesus has conquered that for you. Be encouraged by that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this incredible passage. And the reminder that We all so easily do forget when we allow the business of this world to consume us, but also our own hearts to drive us from you, to fail to put you first. We put all these other things first because we think those are important. We need them. We have to have them. We have to do it. When you're just there in the corner saying, no, come to me. It's abiding in my word. And when you abide with me, you'll know truth and you'll know that you're really set free. It's such a slippery slope. It's so easy for any of us to fall into. God, I just pray for your people today that they wouldn't be discouraged, but encouraged that there's there's hope. What Jesus has done for these Jews in this passage is to give them hope. That's great. Belief is a great starting point. Here's where you have to go. And if you go there, you'll find freedom, real freedom. So help your people today to see that, Lord. We do want to live lives of Christians that is full of fruit, not barren, not falling back into sin, not falling back into past behaviors and patterns, but free, truly free, because if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. We praise you, Jesus, for your words today. In Jesus' name, amen.